Our card this week is Sherry Black, the Nine of Hearts from Utah. In November of 2010, the community of South Salt Lake was shocked by the vicious murder of a beloved great-grandmother. Investigators chased leads and interviewed suspects, utilizing every resource at their disposal to learn who could have committed such a brutal crime and why. But those answers and justice would remain elusive for nearly a decade until a dogged investigator cracked the case. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. It was just after 1.40 in the afternoon when Earl Black got home from work, and he went to let his wife know that he was back. But he called out for his 64-year-old wife, Sherry, in their house and didn't get an answer, so he figured that she was working right next door in this little outbuilding that they had that Sherry ran a bookstore from. And this place is itty-bitty. You can see almost the whole thing from the front door of the shop. So he was surprised when he walked inside and didn't see Sherry sitting at the front counter or organizing a collection of rare books on the shelves. Now, he knew she was around because her car was outside, so he made his way to the back room. He didn't know it in that moment, but at 1.43 p.m. on November 30th, 2010, his whole life was about to change. 911, what is the address of the Emerald? Oh, my wife's been murdered. What address is this at? 3466 South 700 East. Okay, repeat the address for Thirty-four sixty-six thousand seven hundred. And what city are you in? Salt Lake. Are you in South Salt Lake? Yes. Okay. What exactly what happened? What I come home, my wife's been murdered. Apartment. This is a husband. No, are you at a house or an apartment? I am in a house in my shop. What's the name of the business? Thirty uh, B and W Billiard. Okay, I'm getting help started to you. Okay, sir, I'm just going to ask you a few more questions. I help us on the way. Oh. Is she awake? No, she's dead. Okay, is she breathing at all? No, she's dead. (laughs) Is the person who did this, could they still be nearby? I doubt it. Is there any serious bleeding? Oh, just get here. Okay, I, I do have help on the way. You need to. I, I need to ask you some more questions just to get help started. Okay. No, just get here. Okay, I have help on the way too. Is there any serious bleeding? I don't. Okay, listen carefully. I want you to lay her flat on her back and remove any pillows. I haven't touched. Okay. Can you get next to her to see if we can we can start CPR on her? Oh, you can't. She's cold. Oh. Oh, man. What the... Jesus Christ, son. Okay, let me give you some CPR instructions to help her, okay? Uh, I can't... I can't handle this. Okay, I need you to get in the next room, look in her mouth for any food or vomit, okay? Hey, she's dead. Just get here. So you don't want to do CPR? She's cold. She's dead. Um, hey, Sherry's been murdered. 
Yes. Yes. Do you have yes. any idea who could have done this, sir? I have no idea. It's a bookstore. I have no idea. It's a bookstore? Yes. Uh, yes. I'm trying to talk to my grandson at the same What? I'm sorry. I, I got a wrong number. I'll call him. No, sir, I need to, are you talking to me or her right now? I was talking to somebody on the phone. Okay, just to verify, you're at 3466 South 700 East? Yes. Okay. Where at in the business are you? A bookstore. No, are you, where at? Yes, yes, right sir, we're just arriving, sir. We're just arriving. This is the dispatcher. Just stay on the phone with my friend, okay? Any idea who could have done this? No. Do you know what time frame this could have happened between? Hey, I just got home. Just goodbye. No, don't hang up, sir. Sir, are you still there? Oh, my God. Police arrived at the scene within minutes, where a distraught Earl told them what he had found, which was his wife lying on the floor face up in a pool of blood. Her pants and underwear were pulled down, her shirt and bra were pushed up, and stuck in her chest was the pair of heavy scissors Sherry would use to pack up books for shipping. Officers did a sweep of the store and determined that the only person inside was Sherry, and it was too late to save her. Since she was already gone, officers decided not to let paramedics inside in the interest of preserving the scene. Instead, they called in backup and the state's evidence processing team to meticulously comb through the shop. And while they were hard at work, officers got statements from the only two people there, Earl and his employee, this guy named Mike. You see, both men were on a job site building a pool table for a customer. That business Earl mentioned in the call, B&W Billiards and Books, was his and Sherry's business, a combo of a bookstore and a billiard shop. Sherry had the books, and Earl had the pool tables. Both men essentially told police the same story. Earl left his house at around 9.30 or so, and then from his house, he drove over to pick up Mike, and the two spent the morning and early afternoon assembling the pool table at their customer's house. They got back to the Blacks at about 1.40 p.m., and that's when Earl found Sherry's body. When police spoke to Mike, he said that he'd known the couple for more than two decades and had no idea who would do this. Everyone loved Sherry. She and Earl had no enemies. Nobody would want to harm them. Earl, meanwhile, was devastated. Investigators eventually had to cut his interview short when he broke down in tears and asked if they could call anyone to come sit with him. But he assured them that he had already contacted his and Sherry's daughter, Heidi Miller, who was on the way. Heidi told me that she was at home with one of her daughters when she first heard from her dad. Somebody's killed your mom. You need to get here. Just something that you never, you, you never in your wildest dreams expect to hear. Heidi and one of her daughters raced over to her parents' house in disbelief, where they met up with more family. Like Earl and Mike, Heidi couldn't think of anyone who would do this. But she did have some information for officers that helped narrow down the time of Sherry's death. Heidi told officers at the scene that she'd tried to get in touch with Sherry all morning. I called a number of times, started at about 10 o'clock, and she didn't answer. And that wasn't typical of her. She was either at home and would answer on the home phone or had her cell phone with her. And I just had this weird feeling that something wasn't right. 
If everyone's timelines were accurate, that meant Sherry was alive when Earl left that morning, and probably dead or with her killer by the time Heidi called, leaving just a half an hour or so window for this whole thing to happen. South Salt Lake PD took Sherry's family to the police station so detectives could formally question Earl and learn more about his and Sherry's relationship. He told them that the two had married in their teens, when Earl, who's a year younger than Sherry, was just a senior in high school. According to CBS News reporter Julia Dahl, Sherry spent years as a stay-at-home mom to their kids, Heidi and Jason, while Earl ran his pool table business. But Jason died from a gun-related accident in 1989. And after his tragic death, Sherry turned her passion for books into a business venture. Sherry specialized in rare, collectible children's books and books from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She'd visited thrift stores and estate sales to find books that she would resell, some for thousands of dollars. And she had a regular routine. Here's Earl. She would get up early and first thing she'd do is grab a cup of coffee and go out in the shop and jump on the computer and start putting books online and see what orders she had. Police learned Sherry spent her days hunting for bargains at Desiree Industries, which is like a Latter-day Saints version of Goodwill. And she would take their dog to the park, she would run errands, and she spent a lot of time selling books. And Earl said there was nothing going on in their lives that would make Sherry a target. They had a big, happy family, six grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and another even on the way. All in all, they lived a low-key, quiet life together. Now, I'm not sure why, but investigators didn't question any other members of Sherry's family that night. Everyone was allowed to leave, including Earl. Between his alibi, which they were able to verify quickly, and his obvious distress, police didn't seem to consider him much of a suspect. My dad, he had to be escorted into his home to get, like, his toothbrush and a couple things. And we took him to my home, and he never slept in his home again. That home, or at least the bookstore next to it, was a crime scene now. And even if it would eventually be cleaned up, it would always be a crime scene to Earl. The scene told investigators that the crime didn't appear to be well-planned or well-organized. As far as they could tell, the killer hadn't brought their own weapon with them, hence why they used the shears. Next to Sherry's body was broken glass, which officers determined came from an antique soda bottle that she kept on a shelf by the cash register. And whatever had happened, she didn't go down without a fight. Because in addition to the stab wounds and bruising, they could see what looked like defensive wounds on her hands. It was also obvious that the brunt of the attack happened in the stockroom because as gruesome as it was back there, they only found a few bloodstains in the common area. And they weren't super noticeable unless you were actually looking for them. But... The good news, if any news can be good in a situation like this, was that investigators quickly found some key pieces of evidence. First was an imitation Armani Exchange men's belt near Sherry's body. It was size 36 to 38, brown with a square silver buckle. On the front of the buckle were the letters AX, and on the back was a sticker with the number 323 on it, which police thought could be a store item or inventory number. They also found a bloody palm print and fingerprint on the stockroom door, and two more bloody fingerprints on the doorframe. They didn't know yet if the prints had been left in Sherry's blood or the killer's, but either way, this felt incredibly promising. Law enforcement worked through the night, 
And on Wednesday, December 1st, as texts were still pouring over the shop, Sherry's autopsy was conducted. The medical examiner found that she had been stabbed eight times in the head, neck, chest, torso, and abdomen. There were also indications of sexual assault, a bite mark on her breast, slash marks around her nipple, and bruising in her vaginal area. What the autopsy really couldn't tell investigators was why this happened. They didn't think robbery was the motive. Sherry had still been wearing her diamond jewelry, and there was still cash in the register. Even the safe where she kept her most valuable books hadn't been disturbed. That being said, though, they couldn't totally rule out robbery either. I mean, the store was filled to the brim with literally tens of thousands of books. She had 64,000 books. When you'd walk in the bookstore, it just looked like kind of craziness, you know, stacks of books. And she knew how they were organized. But for those of us who didn't, it was very overwhelming. And Sherry hadn't kept any written inventory because she kept it all in her head. So if there were any missing books, they had no hope of tracking them down. As investigators continued searching for leads, news of Sherry's murder spread far and fast through the South Salt Lake community. Everyone was stunned and wondered how someone could commit such a heinous crime in broad daylight and get away with it with no one seeing them. That Wednesday, police gave reporters some updates, but they shared very few details other than that they had no suspects and didn't know what the motive could be. They didn't reveal that Sherry had been sexually assaulted or that shears rather than a knife were used in the stabbing. That would be information that only the killer would know, and police wanted to keep it close to the vest. But they did appeal to the public for help. According to KSL News, they wanted to talk to any witnesses who were in the area from 8 a.m. when Sherry opened the shop until the time her body was found, especially anyone who saw a car speeding away or maybe somebody running from the area, someone who might have been covered in blood. And there was someone in particular that they wanted to speak with. Earl had told detectives that he heard Sherry on the phone with a customer that morning before he left work, a man who was supposed to come pick up a book that day. So maybe he saw something. And luckily, that man reached out to police. The customer told detectives he called Sherry twice on Tuesday morning, first at 9.09 to discuss the purchase and to make plans for picking up the book. Then he called her again at 9.53, this time to tell her that he was running late because of traffic. He said Sherry picked up the phone for the second call and told him it was fine. She'd wait for him. But when he got there around 10.30, the lights on the B&W sign were off, and he didn't see her in the shop. Here's Ben Pender, a detective with the Unified Police Department of Greater Salt Lake. Just kind of looks around in the common area for her and doesn't see her, as even goes next door to the, her house because it's on the same property and knocks on the door. I think he even opens the door and hollers into her. This customer didn't find Sherry anywhere, but he knew that she was expecting him. So he went back into the bookstore where he hung around for like 40 to 45 minutes thinking she'd return. He told police that he didn't check for her in the stockroom since it wasn't generally open to customers. And he said he hadn't seen anything alarming in the main area of the store. I think he was looking for her and probably not paying attention to any of those other details and not imagining what he's walked into. So... Assuming this guy wasn't the killer, and detectives didn't seem to think he was, they realized that Sherry must have been dead by the time he pulled into the Black's driveway. 
In fact, he was probably the last person to speak with her. So that meant one of two things. Either someone came into the store, brutally murdered Sherry, and left in just 35 minutes. Or someone came into the store, brutally murdered Sherry, heard the customer arrive, and hid until he left. Either way, you've got the bulk of this terrible interaction happening in 35 minutes. There was that small window. It's almost as though somebody may have seen Earl leave and and knew that they had X amount of time. It was just unbelievable that that person could get in, do this crime in that short amount of time and be gone. That customer wasn't the only person who stopped by that day. He told police that while he was waiting for Sherry, a second man came in hoping to sell a book. He left when he realized the store owner wasn't there. And then a third person pulled into the driveway around noon, but figured that the store was closed since the sign wasn't on and they left without going inside. Now, keep in mind, the bookstore wasn't a mainstream Barnes & Noble type of place with people randomly stopping by to browse the latest titles. Because of the shop's location and its niche market, most of Sherry's business was done by appointment only. Basically, the way Detective Pender described it to me is that the bookstore was open when she was around and closed when she wasn't. This cozy little shop tucked back from the road off an eight-lane highway seemed like the most unlikely place in the world for a random crime to occur. It was a very busy street, but all along the street were houses, and her house was right next to the bookstore, and the bookstore was just set back, even from the house. I actually went to Utah and saw the property for myself. And even with the sign the Blacks kept outside, it is not the type of place that you just stumble upon by accident. In fact, when officers canvassed the neighborhood, lots of the people that they spoke with didn't even realize there was a bookstore there. Only a few had ever been inside. And many of them didn't know Earl and Sherry at all, even though the couple had lived there for decades. And that's mostly because this area is home to a highly mobile population with lots of renters, most of whom didn't fall into the target demographics of either side of the Blacks' business. But the people who did know Sherry and Earl had nothing bad to say about them. Detectives and Sherry's loved ones were at a loss. With no motive and no suspects, the possibilities were frustratingly endless. And without much else to go on, Sherry's business became a focal point of the investigation as police waited for lab test results. When police asked around to local rare books and antiques dealers, they learned that Sherry was well-known and respected in that circle, a circle that was just as bewildered and scared as the rest of the community. One bookseller who knew Sherry told KSL News that this sort of thing, quote, doesn't happen in the usually genteel world of books, end quote. But as police found out, that world was actually home to some pretty shady characters. In fact, Salt Lake City Weekly reporter Stephen Dark had interviewed Sherry a few years before this for an article about the murky underbelly of the used books and antiques trade. The piece followed a man's quest to recover some Latter-day Saints artifacts and artwork after they were stolen from his home. Sherry, not knowing the stuff was stolen, had actually purchased some old photographs from one of the thieves, a guy named Gerald Corey Lloyd, who the reporter described as, quote, a one-time antique dealer, picker, forger, and meth addict, end quote. The check Sherry paid Gerald was eventually used as evidence against him in court, and he was convicted of burglary. 
When Sherry was killed, he was still in jail, undergoing treatment for substance use disorder. So he wasn't a suspect. But after the murder, Stephen Dark went to visit Gerald to see what he made of this whole situation. Gerald told the reporter that he felt a little guilty. You see, before the stolen photograph fiasco, Gerald had sold Sherry an expensive book, and she was so nice to him. He essentially gave her an underworld stamp of approval. He said that he told other pickers that he knew about her sweetness and generosity. And once he put the word out, Sherry was added to an unofficial group of secondhand books and antique dealers that they could sell stuff to. So any of those shady people he knew could have targeted her. Gerald said that he was totally convinced that her murder was related to Latter-day Saints memorabilia and methamphetamine. And it seemed like he might be onto something because as police quickly realized, Gerald wasn't the only person Sherry helped put in jail. Detectives learned that in early 2009, Sherry had bought some rare Latter-day Saints books from a 20-year-old man named Lauren Nielsen. She paid $20,000 for 14 books, a good deal considering she estimated that they were worth more than twice that. But she found out it was too good to be true when police contacted her. It turned out that Lauren had stolen the books from his father, a well-known church president. According to Deseret News reporter Paul Kep, when his father found out, he confronted Lauren, who warned him not to get law enforcement involved because he was in a gang called the Juggalos. Now, the FBI classifies the Juggalos as a loosely organized hybrid gang whose members religiously follow the rap group Insane Clown Posse. They've been known to commit assaults, robberies, vandalism, and even murder. Sherry was mortified when she found out that the books were stolen. And she had already sold one to another book dealer, but she quickly returned the others and helped with the investigation. Lauren was arrested and sentenced to 90 days in jail after he pled guilty to felony theft charges. Lauren's father told police his son had threatened him before and had a history of carrying weapons. And since Sherry was instrumental in putting him in jail, police wondered if he was angry enough to kill over it. This was the most promising lead investigators had. And as luck would have it, within a week of Sherry's murder, they arrested Lauren on an outstanding warrant for violating his probation. So while he was in jail, they questioned him about Sherry. He admitted that he had sold some books to her and admitted what he had done in the past, but denied any involvement in this particular case. It was around this time that early lab results started coming back, and investigators realized that they had crucial evidence about the killer's identity. They had his DNA. It turns out that bloody palm print left on the door was in the killer's blood, not Sherry's. Investigators figured that he must have hurt his hand while he was stabbing Sherry, and it was enough blood that they were able to get a full DNA profile. Now, they knew this DNA belonged to a male, and they used it to rule out two key people, Lauren and that customer who had been in the store that day. It also wasn't a match for Earl, which I don't think surprised anyone. But what was surprising, considering the violent nature of the crime, was that there was no match in CODIS either. So in all likelihood, whoever killed Sherry didn't have a felony record. Although, as Detective Pender pointed out, they couldn't really rule someone out 100% from the DNA alone. I mean, for all they knew, more than one person could have been involved. And what about the fingerprints, you're asking? 
Well, there's a whole different database for those. The fingerprints they found were actually poor quality. In fact, under normal circumstances, they wouldn't have even been submitted to law enforcement fingerprint databases. However, due to the nature of this case, the crime lab pushed them through. But they still didn't get any hits there either. So police turned to their other big piece of evidence, the belt. No one from Sherry's family recognized it, and investigators didn't think that it had been used in the attack because Sherry didn't have any injuries that matched up with it. But it was so close to her body that they were confident it was the killer's. And they were proven right when they tested the belt for DNA, and it came back with the same unknown male DNA as the bloody handprint. With no other leads, police released photos and details about the belt to the public. According to Salt Lake Tribune reporter Nate Carlisle, it was unique, and they hoped that someone would recognize it. Sure enough, they were flooded with tips. It seemed like everyone knew someone who knew someone else who had a neighbor who wore that type of belt. Unfortunately, none of those tips led anywhere. Even after Sherry's family created a website for her case and put up billboards seeking information. By late March, still with no leads or suspects, police held a press conference to share the fact that they had the killer's DNA. They also announced a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for Sherry's death. And Heidi also issued this heartbreaking plea. I miss my mom so much, I can't even begin to explain the pain that I feel. The person who took her away from our family needs to be caught and put away so that they don't hurt anyone else. They are a danger to our community. My mom was a warm, loving, kind, and generous woman. She was a wonderful wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, and friend. We miss her every minute of every day. If you have any information, please help us. If the person who killed her is listening, please turn yourself in. As tips came in, police consulted with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. And in April, the unit issued a lengthy report. Their theory was that a single offender killed Sherry and that the crime was sexually motivated. Thought maybe the offender becomes sexually aroused by the eroticized violence. They just kind of pointed out that, you know, she was alone in the bookstore. The bookstore's concealed from the view of traffic. The offender targeted the victim. It appears the offender had been in the store previously. The offender could be a customer of either Earl's or Sherry's. Even though the FBI believed there was planning and surveillance involved in the murder, they agreed with the police's initial assessment that the suspect appeared to be criminally unsophisticated because he didn't bring his own weapon and wasn't skilled at using the one he chose. And the timing of this attack also told them something. Not just that maybe he was familiar with the couple or saw Earl leave and targeted Sherry, but the fact that this happened mid-morning on a weekday suggested that he had the freedom and flexibility to commit the crime without anyone noticing he was gone, perhaps due to a job that was somewhat unsupervised or allowed him to travel. What's interesting to me as I was looking into this early on was that Earl had just gotten back from a long hunting trip a few days before the murder. Sherry had been home by herself for a couple of weeks. So that begged the question, if someone was watching her in the time leading up to the murder, why didn't they attack when Earl was away? Why take that extra risk? The FBI believed that the killer might strike again, if the opportunity presented itself. And that was everyone's biggest fear. Whoever this guy was, he had clearly been flying under the radar. 
But they didn't know if that was because he wasn't committing any crimes or he just wasn't getting caught. For Sherry's family, it was torment. They wondered if they knew the killer. Was he in line next to them at the grocery store, watching them as they went about their lives? Here's one of Sherry's granddaughters, Alyssa. You really, like, go through everyone that you know, and it kind of changes the way that you look at people. I don't think there's anything to describe that kind of pain and knowing that you've lost her, but also thinking about what she went through. A lot of anger that he's out there, or whoever did it is out there, living their life. That year, a local forensic consulting firm unveiled a method of testing DNA that could help determine someone's genetic ancestry. The results weren't precise. They could only break down ancestral mixes into five broad categories. But South Salt Lake police decided it was better than nothing. And in May, they learned that Sherry's killer was of 46.2% West African descent. And while they couldn't narrow down the other half, it was a surprise to Sherry's family because... In Utah, and specifically South Salt Lake County, the people there are overwhelmingly white. So this narrowed down the suspect pool significantly. But the new info still didn't provide answers. Though another person of interest surfaced in the first year of the investigation. In November 2011, KSTU-TV reported that police were looking into a 22-year-old man named Helaman Pragana. He had just been arrested that month for a string of robberies and sexual assaults across South Lake County. But his M.O. was approaching women at ATMs, robbing them at gunpoint, kidnapping, and then sexually assaulting them. And once they compared his DNA to Sherry's killer, and it wasn't a match, it was back to square one. Just before the one-year anniversary of Sherry's murder, her family held a press conference in the bookstore to draw attention back to her case. Earl hadn't even reopened the business, but he told Deseret News reporter Pat Reeve that they hoped to at some point. Ironically, it was a book that gave Heidi an idea of how they might be able to catch Sherry's killer. But I'll have to tell you about what Heidi learned and how the course of the investigation changed. So please go listen to part two right now. The Deck is an Audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>